Hi everyone, this is Carol Ann. This week's episode of the podcast is the recording from the October 5th, Fall 2023, X-1-2 magazine issue, featuring the artists and writers. The theme was celebrating the everyday. We hope you enjoy. Also, for those of you who are print subscribers to the magazine, the fall issue is heading to the printer soon, so we'll be looking the next couple weeks for the magazine to hit your mailbox. Thank you. It's what you hearing. What you hearing? Listen. It's what you hearing. Listen. It's what you hearing. Listen. Spawn it. Give it to you. Wait for you to get it on your own. Spawn it. Go deliver to you. Knock, knock. Open up the door. It's real. With the nonstop pop out of stainless steel. Break bread with the enemy. No matter how many cats I break bread with, I'll break who you send me. Exponent 2. Give it to you. Exponent 2. Give it to you. Okay, the cover reveal. So, this is by artist Jackie Larson. They weren't able to make it tonight, but my interview with the cloud. Rachel or Rosie, do you have the artist statement, or should we just keep going for sake of time and people can read? I them? put I put um, the information in the chat. There's not an artist statement with this piece yet, okay. but we loved and Rosie. Yeah, um, I would say that it just captured a lot of um, aspects of the of the everyday. Was the first thing that stood out from pets that we love to couches to pots and brushes and but also had this kind of celebratory and ethereal aspect about it as well so I think it's a uh, just really spoke to the topic at hand and I'm excited to learn more about the piece when we um, get to connect more with the with Jackie for her statement mm -hmm. thanks so much Rosie all right let's keep going with the letter from the editor is Rocio? Rocio, are you here, friend? If not, I have um, her piece pulled up, and I'll just read a paragraph from it. Ro uh, Rocio, feel free to interrupt me if you are here. Um, so we introduce all the pieces that we can in this in this letter. This is just one paragraph that Rocio wrote, and Rocio is our new art editor. So say hello to her if she joins. She writes, I am six months pregnant, and with every new symptom that my body begins to light each week, I find myself looking for the moon to relieve me of another day. However, in between the vomit and backaches, there are small moments of quiet observation, a feeling my body change, and an appreciation for the creative act happening inside of me. As an artist and as the new art editor for Exponent 2, I often think about creating. In creation, whether with our hands or in my womb in this particular case, there is room to explore and celebrate the everyday. Celebrate what accomplishments or disappointments each day has given and holding space to revere the highs, the lows, and everything in between. Jesus taught, take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall t take thought for the thing of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Meanwhile, Alma tells us that by small and simple things are great things brought to pass. What do these expressions actually mean? And hopefully, with all the participants tonight, we'll get a better sense of what that is. Thank you so much, Rachel, Rocio, beautiful words. Um, 
the paradoxes. We have so many of them in our lives. All right, so let's go ahead and get started. We are first hearing from um, Maddie Blomquist from who also asked for the art. The artist isn't able to make it tonight, but she asked for the art that was paired with it to be shown. So I'll go to the next slide, but Maddie's piece is swept away. Maddie, you have about up to two minutes, okay? Thanks, Caroline. Um, I'm gonna read the first little bit of my essay just to give you a taste. When my alarm goes, when my alarm clock goes off, I hit snooze. But am I snoozing? Rarely. Mostly, I lay there torturing myself until the alarm optimistically rings again exactly nine minutes later. I don't want to get up, but I have so much to do today. I don't feel like working, but people are counting on me. My partner has been up for hours now. What is my problem? Aren't early risers more successful than night owls, according to all the productivity wizards and health hackers out there? Doesn't God even have an opinion about sleeping in? I can't even get up when I say I will. I guess that makes me lazy and unrighteous. Ring, ring, ring. The first moment of each morning is a microcosm of the self-effacing internal dialogue that accompanies me throughout my day and keeps me awake at night. Each day begins and ends with the same painful, nagging feeling, guilt. When I think about my own quotidian existence, Guilt is the primary emotion that stands in the way of me celebrating the everyday. I'm sure I'm not the only one. So in my essay, I kind of set out to explore this emotion. And the conclusion that I ultimately arrive at is that not only is guilt unnecessary, but it's actually theologically unsound. We don't need it to improve or progress. For me, guilt's utility is not an it's prevention of wrongdoing and avoidance of sin, but in its ability to signal and prompt Christ-like self-compassionate responses to our own imperfections. I explore this idea in depth in my essay, um, primarily through a reimagining of Eve's choices in the garden and the prodigal son's return home. And um, I wanted to showcase Sarah Weiniger's piece here because um, I just couldn't think of a better for this female figure to be in. On the one hand, um, it, it's pretty ambiguous. On the one hand, she could be retreating inward in shame and trying to protect herself from guilt, or she could be self-soothing as she holds herself in a loving embrace. So there's room for both interpretations here, just as there's room for both experiences. And my hope for the piece in this, um, in this, uh, this forthcoming issue of Exponent 2 is that it provides my readers with a way to opt out of guilt a little more often in favor of self-compassion because we don't need guilt, we just need God. Thank you. Beautiful, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. I, I needed to hear that tonight, thank you. All right, next up we have um, Cynthia Connell. Connell. And her she wrote a Sabbath pastoral, so this means something that she already shared over the pulpit. Um, and the talk was Overcome the World and Find Rest. So go ahead, Cynthia. I have so many things happening right now around me. I'm surrounded by my two-year-old uh, grandson. So I chose not to print out my uh, talk and read any of it because he would just crumple it. So instead, I just wanted to say that um, when we were asked to give this talk, one of the things that stood out was that we had been in the ward seven years and many people have been asked to talk multiple times, but we had never been asked. And so I commented on that uh, 
just offhand at another meeting. And of course, I got an invitation the very next Sunday. Um, we were assigned to speak on President Nelson's talk on the rest of Christ. And um, the, the challenge was that I don't think people really uh, had an, any idea what he was talking about. I have a fairly good understanding of the gospel, and I don't think I knew what he was talking about. So I did some research, and I found out that the rest of Christ is completely different to us. It's a whole bucket full of concepts that essentially boil down to the rest in Christ means the absolute certainty that we will not turn away from Christ. The absolute certainty that no matter what happens in our lives, we will still remain faithful to Christ. And that's hugely different than the idea that, wow, life is over and now I can kick back and put my feet up. So understanding not only the concept more clearly, but actually looking at the physical text of his uh, conference talk allowed me to understand what he thought was important by looking at how he structured his talk. It wasn't just random. It was incredibly intentional and in many ways paralleled the, um, the concept or, or definition of rest that um, is quoted in the article. So in that way, I've really benefited from the talk because it gave me a much deeper understanding of how to survive in the world we live in today. And that's kind of what I wanted to say. Thanks so much, Cynthia. That's a little more than two minutes, so I'm going to stop you. But thank oh, you so much. And nice reminders when we're so busy. And thank you for tuning in even when you're busy watching your grandson. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, um, this is the art that is paired with um, Cynthia's piece. So go ahead, Lovetta, when you're ready. Hi, thank you. Um, this painting was inspired by a quote from Christine Kane, where she says, sometimes when you're in a dark place, you think you've been buried, but actually you've been planted. And I love that idea because the very same things can be happening to you when you're buried as when you're planted. But the way you respond to those things is vastly different. You can have dirt heaped on you. You are in the darkness. It feels heavy. But if you're buried, you have to get out of there as soon as possible so you can breathe again. Like, you must leave if you've been buried. You have to get out or you're going to die. But when you're planted, everything is the same. But what you do is you rest and you put down roots and you gain nutrients and you grow. And... I just love that thinking about my life. And another thing I was thinking about when I painted this was what is the dirt and how interesting it is that for me in my life, the very things that at the time feel so heavy and like they might crush me are later the same things that give me strength and nurture, like, and, and ability to grow and like impetus for change. And so I liked thinking about the dirt and just reframing I guess, challenges and trials and darkness in my life. Um, 
yeah, so that's kind of what I was thinking when I painted this. And I love having an image because other people can bring what they see in, in it too. So. Thank you. Thank you. I love hearing the story and that uh, Rachel put in the chat that it was inspired by a quote. So, so lovely. Thank you. Thank you, Lavetta. Okay, next up we have Life As It Is with Gloria Pack. This is our flannel board, um, which is kind of when we try to interview or have a um, conversation with someone where it's a little bit more kind of how-to guys think back in the day with a flannel board of um, whiteboard PowerPoint, low-key low PowerPoint. So go ahead, Gloria, when you're ready. Hi, everyone. Good to be here. Um, I think as it relates to the theme of celebrating the everyday, um, just wanted to share that, you know, being interviewed uh, as a representative of Lower Lights, it's an organization, nonprofit that Thomas, uh, my husband and I run together. Um, but we teach contemplative practice and um, practices that um, essentially help us to just be ourselves in this life as it is. And it sounds so simple and yet it's so challenging and it's such a, a, a process of becoming ourselves. Um, and so um, we take on practices such as meditation or um, learning about adult develop development to basically come back to life as it is and be in a non-fighting posture with reality. Um, and, and it sounds like um, cliche in so many ways, but uh, once you start the practice, it, it, you realize how much friction we have in that fight if we wanna change who we are change reality and it's more a process about relaxing um relaxing into who we already are rather than trying to get somewhere else and so i think for me that's how i would sum up um the practice the practices we do um through lower lights um as it relates to this theme so um i hope that gives the taste of it and it's sort of hard to explain in two minutes but hopefully that gives a little taste of what we do thank you so much gloria um yeah, yeah rachel put like a link in the chat there's also a podcast with so many so many wonderful things so thank you um yeah accepting reality as it is thank you good reminders and hard to master like i love that you said that was simple but it's still so hard okay next up we have um an interview with Carly White. So um, Rocio interviewed Carly, but um, the artist we're featuring is Carly White. So Carly, I put a bunch of, I think we have like five images. <laughs> but, um, yeah, you can Yeah. Okay, go to the next one. Let me know when you're ready. Yeah. Thank you. Um, you guys can hear me okay? Yep. Okay, we're in the middle of a move. So hectic. Um, let's just... I'm just going to read part of the interview, if that's okay. Um, I hold an art show out of my house each year where I share my art. And I was asked about in the interview by Rocio um, why I do it out of my house. Um, and it just kind of prompted this answer for me. 
So I said sometimes I think perhaps incorrectly that the drive of an artist is to close that gap between the canvas and the image in an artist's mind. The problem is that the more I try, the more I learn about art, the bigger that gap feels, the more you know, right? Oh, to be five years old and draw an unproportional house with your stick figure family towering over it. You show your mom confidently show, knowing that you just put on paper exactly what you wanted to create. And guess what? She absolutely loves it. It's the best thing she's ever seen. And it makes you want to do it more. Paradoxically, the older I get and the more I create, the larger I perceive my gap to be. And the more discouraged I am when it comes to putting that idea down on paper, I sit here being asked about my art, my inspiration, my process, and the gap has never felt larger. 27-year-old Carly wants to scream, but I'm not good yet. Have you seen what so-and-so is creating? But if I quiet my mind, five-year-old Carly is excitedly shouting, look what I made. That's what I wanted to make. And I love it, and I love art, and I'm so happy you're looking at it. So maybe that's why I choose to do it out of my own home every year, to recreate the childlike experience of hanging my art on my fridge for the ones that I love most to fawn over, no matter the quality of my work. These people are those who have that parent-like belief in artists. They're the ones who help you perceive that gap to be non-existent, allowing you to rejoice in the process. And at least once a year, I need that energy to be renewed in me. So I invite everyone to my home to see my art. Um, and the reason I shared that is because I feel like that's what this magazine is. <laughs> it's like everyone to rejoice over the process of art. Like, the result or the what we end up making is so much less important than like the people that gather around the artists um, to help encourage them to keep going. And so I don't, I don't know. I, I love um, this magazine. I think it's wonderful. And then um, if you want to just skip, there's a purple painting I'm going to talk about for two seconds. Not that one. I might use a lot of purple. That one. Yes. So I just wanted to, mention this one because of what Gloria just said. Um, this piece I did during a faith crisis, faith journey, faith deconstruction, whatever um, I feel like calling it in the moment. Um, and it's about sitting back and observing what you're experiencing, judgment on your experiencing. Um, I'm going to read the write-up really quickly, and then I'm done. So, again, this is about my experience with religion. I use the fruit as a good fruit analogy. Um, so it says, I once looked at the fruit I was holding and found it looked completely different than I remembered, and I almost threw it out of shock. Was this the same fruit I held in my youth? Surely it was, but the lighting had changed, and suddenly I could see in the shadows. There were bruises, scrapes, scratches, like this fruit had a history I was entirely unaware of. I wasn't ready to take a bite yet. It still felt unfamiliar, but I wasn't ready to drop it either. After all, she had fed me for so many years, so I held her in my hand, looking at her curiously, learning more of her day by day. So, um, yeah, I am excited to read what Gloria put in the magazine with this idea of life as it is, I think is what it's called. I think that's beautiful. Um, and that's kind of what most of my pieces have been based on lately, is my relationship with my ever-changing faith. So. Thank you so much, Carly. I'm gonna scroll through so people can see the other images, but we are past time, so we'll go to the next person. This one's God's Many Voices and Balancing Doctrine and Revolution. It's a beautiful work. Thank you, thank you.
Next up, we have um, poem Wrestle by Janessa Margaret Ransom. So go ahead, Janessa, when you're ready. Okay, thank you. I hope you guys can hear me. I'm sitting in my car waiting while my daughter's at soccer practice. We can hear you perfectly. Okay, okay. we're celebrating the everyday wherever you are. Okay, that's right. Um, okay, so I have a poem to share with you today, and I just want to express gratitude to everyone in Exponent 2 um, for accepting this poem in your um, publication. Uh, it's exciting for me to be part of this beautiful thing that you guys are doing, so thank you. Um, I love I love what um, Carly and Gloria are both talking about in terms of um, acceptance, and I, I found in my own life that that is so true, just accepting what is, acknowledging that when life is hard, hard is hard. I also love that beautiful art of the being buried in, as a seed rather than enveloped in darkness. So I love these beautiful themes of like acceptance and um, and all of that. But my poem is um, from a moment in my life when I had to fight, like um, I had to um, take action. And so let me just read the poem and then I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more what that meant for me. It's called Wrestle. Like Jacob ascending the ladder, I have wrestled with an angel. In the wilds of my laundry room, I grabbed the seraph's heel, dirty towels heaped in a pile at my feet. We battled, legs and arms locked, detergent scenting the air. They fled through the dryer vent, lint clinging to their wings. Thigh bruised, I pulled down blessings upon the heads of my children. So that's the poem. Um, and for me, there's the very literal aspect of the poem, and then there's the metaphorical aspect of the poem. And the literal aspect of the poem is that um, this poem is from a time in my life when my daughter, who was 15, 16 at the time, was struggling with a very, very serious illness and was in and out of the hospital, missing a lot of school, um, and I had been praying one long constant prayer through all of these months and months of, of work on her recovery, on her healing. And it just got to a point one day where I just felt in my bones, like, enough. Like, this is enough. And life was happening all around me. My kids were all around. I have five kids. And I just went into my laundry room, which is more of a closet than a room, and just closed the door. And I started to pray in a way that I've never really pray prayed before or since, but it really did feel like a wrestle. It was this negotiation with God where I was just saying, this is not going to be my daughter's life. We are going to get through this. She is going to get better. And I've never talked to God in that way before. But I, I just felt compelled um, to have that really direct, um, assertive conversation with him. And, um, and as I had thought back on that moment um, and that feeling of wrestling, then comes the metaphorical part of the poem, which references Jacob. And the story from the Bible, which I'm sure you're all familiar with in Genesis in the 20s, 22, 23, 24, 
he's wanting to return to Canaan, but he has his father-in-law who he's kind of escaping from. He leaves in the night, so he's got danger behind him. And he's wanting to return to Canaan, but he doesn't know how his brother Esau will accept his return. So he's got danger ahead of him. And he spends one night on the bank of a river alone. And that's when he sees this angel and wrestles with this angel. And as a result of this night-long, just intense wrestling match with this angel, the angel finally asks him his name and then bequeaths a blessing to him that then blesses all of his children. And it was really important to me when I was writing this poem to center this story um, on women. I mean, it was literally about a time I spent in my laundry room. But there's something powerful about um, women's spaces, not that the laundry room should be a woman's space. Men can do laundry too. But um, I guess what I'm trying to say is, I've just learned over my life that there's so much power in a mother's prayer. And I wanted to show that power and that wrestle that brings so much strength and blessing to our children. So I hope I captured that. No, it, it was such, such a beautiful poem. And I love hearing the backstory as well. I'm sorry, we have to keep going, though, but. So excited yeah, to read the poem. And I love when poets read it out loud in this launch party. It makes me so happy. Okay, next up we have Moonrise, another poem by Cheryl Seeley Savage. Go ahead, Cheryl, when you're ready. Um, hi. Um, I wrote this poem. Um, it was in a series of poems that I had written about Heavenly Mother. It was at a time where I was, well, it's, I'm still in that time trying to make sense of, you know, womanhood and heavenly mother and her existence and where, where can I see her and why don't we see her and why is she, do you know what I mean? The whole, or we're not allowed or something like that. And um, I was also, I'm also going through a lovely thing called perimenopause. And um, I'm finally, for the first time in 23 years, I'm finally enough removed from childbearing and nursing I've had I have eight children and I'm enough away from it that I'm finally kind of feeling my own body to myself but having this nice relationship of perimenopause with my period so I wrote moonrise kind of like realizing that heavenly mother understands <laughs> what this feels like and so here we go moonrise moonrise and I sense her in the tides in the cycle every pull of muscle, every drop of blood, back and forth, high to low. She moves within me. I see her face beyond me. She is the moonlight paving pathways for the sun across ebony-laced skies. And I think uh, sometimes <laughs> I'm still having that wrestle um, I appreciated, you know, the painting and the <laughs> the wrestle that you have with with um, like the faith crisis, this, this thing. And when I think of the sun, and I was thinking not necessarily of a Christ figure, but somewhat of of um, Heavenly Father too, and that she is paving the pathways and she's there. We may not always see her in the twilight and the dawn or whatever, but but that she's still there. And it just kind of that's what I was. Kind of thinking as I was writing it. So beautiful. Thank you so much, Cheryl. Oh, you're welcome. 
Next up, we have um, undertone. Sorry, I forgot the close parentheses. Now with Darlene Young. Go ahead, Darlene, when you're ready. Hi, thanks for having me. So I um, live in Salt Lake and I work in Provo and I often take the front runner. And it's often just that dusky color in the morning when I'm traveling and I watch the people out the out of the window, I watch people's backyards and I like to spy on people. And um, I wrote this poem on a day when I had traveled through the desk and I had seen a woman come out on her porch and just gaze up at the sky. And I just felt connected to her. She had no idea that I could see her, but I just felt connected across the desk to this woman. Undertone. Evening comes on. A woman raises her hand to the sky. Clouds are passing, but no plane. If it did, people on the plane would look down and see only a field, buildings, not the woman, not the boy standing at a chain link fence shuffling his feet, nor the Barbie in the gutter. Somewhere a dog drinks from cupped palms. A woman takes a thimble from a basket, dips her face down into her work like falling water. I am in love with the loneliness of dusk. Dusk is a paperback that's fallen behind the couch, a handwritten grocery list tucked in a library book by the reader before, that mysterious shadow who shares your taste in reading, who probably stands half-dressed looking at the trees dark against the snow. The afternoon puts on twilight like a woman donning stockings. I need hold no longer to my skin. Thank you. Thank you, Darlene. Such a cool time of day to like witness and, and write about. Thank you. Next up, we have a poem, Diary by Millie Tullis. Go ahead, Millie, when you're ready. Great. Um, thank you all. It's so nice to be in a Zoom room and listening to all of you um, and looking at, looking at art together. Um, so, I won't say very much about this um, poem, but I sort of wrote a handful of poems about diaries and notebooks um, throughout my life, uh, both as sort of weird physical objects to lug around through my, I've had a couple cross-country moves um, in the last few years, um, but also sort of my own relationship to them as artifacts and, and um, to my past and stories I tell myself about myself. So this is one of these um diary, and it's in sections, so I'll sort of pause the sections. As a child, I saw my future audience clearly. In Sunday school, I was taught to write for all my future children and all their future children that they may know my girl mind. I worked hard to sound good. As a teenager, I called it my journal. I stopped saying, dear. In college, I said, notebook. Look how I hammered these words into work. When we moved across the country the first time, I packed gently so the heavy notebooks wouldn't crush the small diaries. I threw away half of the notebooks, diaries, and journals a few years ago. We were moving again. I couldn't bear the thought of their weight, three boxes of time. Our car was small, it had to hold the cooler, two cat kennels, our shared yellow suitcase. I poured water over the notebooks. I lived in the city, I could not burn them. Thanks. 
Thank you, Millie. So, so many evocative words and phrases. Thank you, thank you. Next up, we have Lost Things um, by Janine IRB. So go ahead, Janine, when you're ready. Hi, yeah. Can you hear me? We're good? Yep. Okay. So um, I wrote this essay. <laughs> I think the overall tone of this essay is annoyance. Um, annoyance at my losing things, at my children losing things, and then at finding things and all of all of all of that in between. So I wrote this essay. It was inspired by a time we went to visit my in-laws and my husband lost our car keys in the snow when he was out playing with the kids. And I was like, are you serious? And then he pulled an extra set of car keys out of my purse. And I was like, what are you doing? Why are those in there? And he said, well, I just got a feeling. So I put them in there before we left. And I was like annoyed with God in that moment that a God with all power couldn't have gone to the trouble to keep the car keys in the pocket. And instead he gave us revelation so that we would have car keys when we lost them. It just felt like a bunch of hoops to jump through anyways. So I'm just going to share the first little tiny bit of the essay to give you just a little taste. I used to wonder why there were so many stories in the children's friend magazine about praying over lost objects. Then I had children and I understood. My kids are constantly losing things, shoes, socks, homework, treasured stuffed animals. They even managed to lose my things, remote controls, charging cords, kitchen utensils, keys. And kids are also terrible at looking for lost things. My 12 year old son stands in the middle of his messy bedroom, casting a cursory glance over the items strewn all over his floor before declaring that his scriptures have disappeared and will never be found. Losing things is such a universal and upsetting experience. As a parent, it makes sense to take the opportunity to teach children to turn to God in those moments when they feel the most powerless. Of course, I also lost things as a child. I remember standing in my bedroom looking helplessly at the flood of stuffed animals and Power Ranger action figures and dirty laundry. In my memories, I wade through the detritus of my bedroom, trying to avoid stepping on any tiny pointed Barbie shoes with my bare feet as I search for my prized mood ring. Sometimes I'd get lucky, finding the needle in the haystack on my own. Most of the time, I'd call for my mom to help me find the missing object. Very rarely, when all other options had been exhausted, I'd remember those stories in the friends. Stories of children who, in the depths of their trials, would drop to their knees praying for divine assistance. So I thought I'd give it a try. And you know what? It never worked. Thank you. Thank you, Janine, for that teaser. And so many universal feelings of loss and upset and um, so every day as well. Thank you. Next up, we have Turning the Corner with Liz Bus Busby. Apologies if I pronounced your last name wrong. Go ahead, Liz, when you're ready. Oh, it's Busby, like a buzzing bee. Busby, love it. Thank you. There you go. Um, so I wrote this essay. The title refers to two changes, one big and one small, that I noticed this Christmas. Um, and I, the essay tries to embody the moment when you realize you've, you're almost through something hard and kind of that bittersweet nature of even positive changes. Uh, so this is the beginning. It's that part of Christmas break where cooking becomes difficult because all my children are sleeping with mixing bowls. Even though they haven't thrown up since last week, the bowl's silvery presence comforts them with some semblance of control over what is clearly beyond all of us. I'm hesitant to retrieve them. 
I don't know if I can take another night of being dragged out of bed at 2 a.m. to change someone's sheets. So I make do with the remaining bowls, even though they are too small, piecing together tonight's dinner out of various holiday leftovers. Even with the frustration of not having my usual complement of tools, making dinner has become a relaxing part of my day. When I was a new mother, I struggled learning to cook with kids around. I would carefully measure out cups of flour, the toddler's block tower suddenly crashing to the floor, making me lose count. Now all four of my kids are reading in their rooms or bringing to life their latest paper bag puppet from scrap paper, yarn, and Crayolas. These days when dinner is on the table, I don't have to scramble for something they will eat if one of my kids doesn't like what's being served. Even my seven-year-old can pull a stool up to the counter and make herself a peanut butter sandwich if she really can't stand what's on offer. They are independent in ways I couldn't have imagined even two years ago. Thank you. Thank you, Will, that they're independent in ways I couldn't have imagined. I have a four-year-old and an eight-month-old, so <laughs> I'm sick of it right now. All right, next up we have the Power of My Love Beans is still quite potent with Coselia Cummings. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm going to share an, a short excerpt from my personal essay. Yesterday, I woke up early and went to the local market. A signature Berkeley guy, older, hippie, beardy, chatty, saw the mini pumpkins stealing my basket and asked me if I had kids at home. We chatted about pruots and plum pie and arriving early to get the discounted bags of produce. Then he looked wistful and said his kids were 35 and 22. He just went to a concert in Europe with his 35-year-old. So they're still fun. But he worried about his 22-year-olds, about her being too serious, getting stuck in a shitty job, having kids, and falling into a mediocre marriage like mine. I felt around the navel oranges and picked out a few, nodding to signal I was listening, but fretting internally as he talked at me and the silent rainbow of vegetables. Still, I worried about the guy's worries as they picked out a head of butter lettuce and five pounds of yellow nectarines. I mulled over his marriage by the beet greens and unwieldy sprouts and swiftly defended my own by the just-so rows of tart green apples and crisp red delicious. Once in line, I changed my mind and went back for another speckled yellow heirloom tomato and a loaf of fresh bread and a white paper bag. Toast. We'll have butter on toast with sliced tomato and Malden sea salt and pepper and maybe bacon and a vinegary salad. Tonight I toasted that wheat loaf and then buttered it with too much butter. My husband cooked thick slices of salty bacon. I slapped tomatoes on top and we all stood in the kitchen munching and chatting about Halloween movies, interrupted by cries for more bacon, more toast, cups of milk, and a different dinner. The boys cleared their plates. I pinched my husband's bum and everyone left for baths and sleepy bedtime reading. Let's do this again sometime, these messy sandwich dinners and crummy counters and sticky pitter-patter feet. Let's do this again, maybe tomorrow at six? No, six in the morning, for four messy bedheads and lopsided backpacks and forgotten multivitamins and morning breath. It'll be good, maybe great, but it may just be. Is that okay? How does that sound? Okay, I'll be there. Mm, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you really captured the everyday in that. Um, this is the art that is paired with that piece. So um, Elizabeth Bishop Wheatley, when you're ready, um, we'd love to hear about your piece. Thank you. Hey there. Um, can you hear me? Yes. Thank you. Okay, cool. I'm just, I'm not showing up on my own screen, so I'll have to like, let me know if I'm not 
in frame. Um, I apologize for my voice. I'm a little bit under the weather, but thank you for pairing my my piece with those beautiful words, Caselli. Those are those are all too familiar around our house. Um, I'm going to read my artist statement um, real quick about this piece, um, A Mother's Bouquet. Um, with young children, days have a tendency to blend together, the house perpetually disheveled. There is rarely time, space, or money for extravagance. It is all too easy to feel unseen or unimportant. But my kids know I love them, and they know I love flowers, so they run to me with messy hair and sticky hands and eyes wild with joy to bring me their found treasures, their pockets of sunshine, their best bouquet. And I hold the crumpled weeds and random pebbles for what they truly are, a celebration of their simple and unmatched love, fleeting and unrefined and often unnoticed by those of us that have learned to call their beauty weeds. Um, I recently shared this piece um, at a, a solo art show that I did in my backyard. <laughs> and the whole point of this show was my scrambling, I guess, to find some semblance of balance as both a mother and an artist and a woman and all these different facets of me. And time and time again, I feel the invitation from my children to shift my perspective and be planted in the present for better or worse. Um, one of my other pieces, um, a line from the artist statement, um, talks about this push and pull and this give and this constant re-examining of the children on my lap and the crumbs on the ground and the art in my heart and the mess on my counter. And just the, it just ends and just says, somehow, some way, there's room for both needs and they will lead me to it. And I've just had this kind of as a reverberation um, the last few years as I settle in both into motherhood, but also into my own self and into my own womanhood. And just this every day is not extravagant, but there still holds beauty. Thank you for your wise, wise, beautiful words and beautiful art. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. Yeah, my, my realization lately is I don't have it all together and just like full stop. Instead of being like, eh, sorry, but no, I apologize. I don't have it all together. Next up, we have Allison Hong Merrill and her essay, The Trench Coat of Multiple Colors. Hi, uh, thank you so much for having me. And also, thank you so much for allowing me to share my story with the Exponent 2 community. And I would like to read uh, an excerpt of this essay. My birthday, 48 years old. The same age as Mama, the same age as Mama was when I left Taiwan. I remember her face, not her voice. I thought of the coat. Where did it go? Upstairs, bathroom, basement, storage room, garage, laundry room, closet, guest bedroom. Nowhere, nowhere, nowhere in sight. Possibly, my husband had thrown it out secretly quietly, quickly. No, maybe not. Maybe he donated it to a local thrift store. Maybe a teenage girl bought it for a dollar, maybe more. Paid more, that, paid more for it than I did. Maybe she loved it more than I did. Maybe she wore it better than I did. How did she feel when she wore it? 
a child born in 2007 wearing a trench coat made in 1987. Did she wear it to not look like herself? Did she also wear it for Halloween? Or for a school play? For a photo shoot? For a dress up party? Where could I find her? How could I tell her about the world tour of the coat, journeying from Japan to Taiwan to America? How could I tell her? It was the only physical possession I had of my mother who passed away in an ambulance, wearing only a thin cotton slip when she closed her eyes for the last time. How could I tell anyone that I wish I had apologized to her for coveting and thieving. How I wish I could have draped the trench coat of multiple colors over her frail, shivering body when she silently left this world, left her tearful life on that cold winter night on her 50th birthday. Thank you. Thank you, Allison. Haunting and beautiful. Um, next up, we have a found, um, Kate Benyon, an essay, um, a found poem. And I also have the image when you're ready. Let me know, Kate, if you want me to go straight to it. Um, I'll cue you, Carol. How's that? Okay. <laughs> so I live in New York City, which is a very chatty city text-wise. Um, there's lots of signs and graffiti and ads and printed matter. Um, so much so that when you're out and about walking around, which you do a lot of in New York City, it can feel like a conversation. Um, and when I see some text that speaks to me, I like to take a picture and capture and collect like the city marginalia. Um, and one day during lockdown, I was taking my little sanity walk in the park and I saw God written on the ground and as I'm pulling out my phone to take a picture, this squirrel runs across and stops. Um, and do you want to show the picture of Carolyn? And it's probably my favorite picture that I've ever taken. I don't think it will ever be surpassed. Um, just the position with like the question, like the tail is the question mark. Um, this experience just really expanded my view of what a poem can be and that something like a punctuation mark or a squirrel or both can really alter the way we view or interact with just this everyday text. Um, so in this upcoming issue, I have a, a found poem piece that is comprised of pictures of different words, different phrases that I have seen in day-to-day -day life, um, rearranged and assembled to create a little bit of a different meaning and also hopefully to push and expand the way we encounter and interact with language in these everyday contexts that are not the page. Thank you so much, Kate. Thank you, thank you. If you read through the chat, there's a lot of LOLs in there. Great, great capture of this picture. Um, next, up we, next up, we have Melody Jackson with her essay, Moonlight Catfish. So go ahead, Melody, Melody when you're ready. Hello everyone. Um, I'll just give a brief backstory to this to this essay that I write. Um, I'm currently a PhD student at the University of Maryland, and is my camera on? Can people see? It is. Yeah, I can see. Hello. Okay. okay. Um, and I 
currently um, interested in the ways in which food kind of tells the story of Black women, particularly Black queer LDS women in Brazil and in um, the U.S. American South. And so I'm always kind of thinking about the ways in which food tells stories about loss, about family, about grief, about land, about history, about race, about sexuality. Um, and so I wrote this essay um, kind of in the grief of having so much loss. My mom recently passed away unexpectedly. My grandmother passed away. And I was recently going through a breakup. And it wasn't just any breakup. Um, it was my first queer relationship um, and exploring that side of myself. Um, and so I thought that this essay kind of would express um, the things that I really couldn't, didn't really have the language to, but um, food kind of speaks in the silences and sits in the silences and in the gaps and in the grease um, and kind of communicates when language kind of um, maybe isn't brave enough to leave my body yet. So I'll read um, two sections of the essay and um, it's called Moonlight Catfish. Catfish is very central and important to my family history being from Mississippi. My grandmother loved to fish. It was one of the first skills that she taught me as a child. It's how to fish. And it's also based off of the film Moonlight, which is a coming to age sto uh, story of this queer black man, but kind of refocusing that story on uh, my experience as a queer black woman. Okay, so it follows me cooking kind of this piece of fish and going through recipe, my grandma's recipe, because I was like, I don't know if I should share this, but I decided to share um, and kind of having these memories and, and reminding myself to, to kind of return to the present. Okay. I thoroughly seasoned the fish, coat in the buttermilk, and allowed to rest. Once, when I was six years old, my grandmother woke me early one Saturday morning and dressed me rather deliberately. Lavender, iron shirt with creased blue denim pants, long tube socks with pink dingy outside shoes. They carry bits of dried red clay and stiff glass braids from summer escapades. The air clung to my clothes as if it knew what she had planned, cradling me for the birth. Trapping me tightly into her white Ford pickup, my grandmother moseyed down the street, down narrow cracked streets and across segregated train tracks for about three miles. When she stopped, I could only hear lapping water against concrete. We had arrived. The Mississippi River hummed with the certainty for which I yearned to perfectly remember home through displacement felt sacred. My grandmother rummaged two fishing poles from the truck bed, handed me one, then chose her space. This was her tabernacle. This was her Sabbath. Slicing through the quiet, she leaned over and decidedly uttered, Jesus could not be Jesus without the fish. I had never fished before. But my grandmother knew that the day would arrive when I would need to perform my own healing miracles. Since the oil had already seared my skin, I knew it was ready. I'm not supposed to be here. Bodies like mine were never meant to love its own kind. I blink, and there I am again with you. We sit cross-legged in the makeshift hush harbor, hush harbor of my SUV truck like devious school kids under rainbow, rainbow parachutes. Our best memories hang on illuminated nylon string as taboo souvenirs. Occasionally, the moonlight flickers across your jawline 
Whenever you make the tiniest movements, it too adores your skin, coloring it blue. I prepare a spread of cured meat, fresh cheeses, and fruit on an unstained wooden board. You compliment my arrangement. I compliment your observation. We then eat as if engaged in ordinance, favoring, reverencing, honoring. Flute glasses lightly clink as initiatory prayer into this union. I softly brush your hand, morphing it with mine for offering. This felt unbridled. Swaddled together like Bethlehem mangers under, under East African stars. You suggest the film. Light wind carried the stillness as we watched the black mermaid find her breath above water amongst the forbidden. I softly caress your fingers. We hold and commune in a space that is distinctively ours. Black women unashamed. Thank you, Melody. So excited for everyone to get to read the piece. And thank you for sharing the, back, sharing the backstory. And so sorry for so many layers of loss. Thank you. I'm glad that you could create this, this beautiful work. Um, please read the chat. We put a lot of comments. Um, next up, we have Whitney Bush with Ode to the Back Deck. And Whitney, when you're ready for the image, let me know. Um, you can go right to it. Thanks, okay. Carolyn. So um, this is a piece that I wrote this summer. So I'm a, I teach middle school in New York City, um, and I spend a lot of my summers in Wisconsin. Um, I had this last year has been like a particularly difficult year, not only because I had I, I mentioned in the essay teaching just an extremely difficult cohort of seventh graders who like I loved, but like needed every ounce of my humanity and energy to get through the year. And then also in the winter, my father had a heart attack and he's okay, but it was like a rocky road. And then I had like a very traumatic breakup at, in like late spring, early summer. And so I got home at the beginning of July and I was like, I just need to sit. <laughs> I just need to sit and I need to be. Um, and so this is an essay about sitting on um, my parents' back porch. And this is a picture of um, that porch where I would sit. And so I'm just going to read the first two paragraphs of it. The wrens haven't stopped singing since I returned to my childhood home for the summer. No matter the time of day, I sit in one of the three brown and green Adirondack chairs on the deck outside the red cedar screen porch facing the backyard. A small birdhouse hangs in the eastern redbud, almost invisible behind the broad heart-shaped leaves. You can't always see the wrens slit in and out of the birdhouse, but you can always hear them. Wisconsin summers are rich with hot, sticky days, the kind of days that make fields glow with firefly light and make walking feel more like swimming, the kind of days where you can watch thunderstorms roll in and lightning streak across the whole sky again and again and again without pause, the kind of days where you walk across the parking lot and the asphalt softens and you wonder if you should ever go outside again. But sitting on the back deck of my parents' home, sheltered by old oaks and half a dozen species of maple, surrounded by the thick green of deciduous trees and perennial flowers, the heat never feels that oppressive. A cloak of chlorophyll protects us. So I come out every morning and every evening for the month of July, and I sit. Thank you. Thank you, Whitney. I'm glad you can have that contrast between New York City and Wisconsin. Um, we have, I don't know if artist Mercedes is here. She said that she might be able to come because she had a different meeting. Um, but Mercedes, are you here? I'll this put, I'll put the artist, um, statement in the chat if folks want to learn about these really interesting. This is the, um, art that was paired with it, right? Or is it, now I'm confused. 
Wait, Rachel or Rosie, stop me if it's actually paired with a different piece. I think it's, no, it's paired with a different um, this, piece. Sorry. It's paired with a different piece. Okay. It's all right. Yeah. I'll, I'll flag in the in the chat. Yeah. Thank you. So, yeah, so there's um, two. Oops. Uh -uh. Okay, here are the two. Um, so, view from a natural habitat. And then nothing beats a nice hot bath. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, Mercedes said she's a maybe tonight. Thank you. We have one minute left. <laughs> so thank you so much for those who participated. It felt so good. Um, also, we um, give people the option to accept the payment, the, um, the honorarium, which we welcome because we want to support artists and writers. We also invite people if they want to instead donate their honorariums. This is um, where this group um, decided to either um, which of the different community funds they decided to contribute to. So we have $360 and back to the back pay to editors who donate their stipends, $120 to scholarships for BIPOC artists and writers, $40 for the um, the retreat scholarship, and then $40 for the collaborative art, twenty $40 for the collaborative art commission. So thank you so much. Um, next up, a great way to support us is to subscribe. Um, so everyone who contributed does get a free copy, but if you subscribe by October 15th, um, you'll going forward be getting um, the magazine as well. And if you want to invite your friends or family, if they want to get a copy of it, they can either buy a um, single issue copy um, after the, after it's published, um, or if they subscribe by October 15th, they'll get it in the mail um, sooner than buying it individually. Um, next, another way to help support us is we are a 501c3. Um, we don't have billions in the bank. We are working toward getting an endowment. Um, our 50-year anniversary is coming up this next year. Uh, we started in 1974, so we're getting 50 years old. So excited about that. Um, but if you want to contribute on Patreon, um, we have a few perks on there. Um, we also have a podcast. Another way to stay connected um, is you can subscribe to the podcast, subscribe to a newsletter. So a free newsletter that lets you know about different events. We have writing workshops, um, different events like that. We have a blog. Um, welcome, they welcome guest posts. Um, yeah, some different ways to stay connected. Thank you. We have, um, let's stay on for those who want to stay on for about two to five minutes if we want to do some Q&A. But people need to go. Have a wonderful evening and rest of your week. Happy fall. And just wanted to echo everything that Carolina said. I just feel very full. And it was lovely and wonderful to have glimpses into people's lives and where they're reading and where they're at. And um, just really excited for this issue. And thank you for the love and sweat and tears and surviving um, that have taken to bring it here. So thank you. Any questions for each other? So again, I give you permission if you need to leave. Good night. If you do want to stay, let's stay till the next like five minutes. Um, if we want to ask questions of each other. Okay, I have a question. <laughs> um, do we know what the um, what the future, uh, oh, I just lost my train of thought, what the future editions, uh, magazines, <laughs> what the future magazines are going to be themed around? Yeah, so, um, we have a contest issue coming up. Rachel, want to tell, tell them? Yeah, about I'll, I'll put it in the link. Um, so there's so many poets of you, um, amazing poets on the call that I feel like embarrassed even trying to talk about Robert Frost. But we're all very familiar with the road not taken poem. And it's usually read at like a graduation speech or something. But it's actually like it's not like the glorious road I took. Right. It's like 
the road I didn't take. It's actually, I think, um, has a lot of notes about regret. And I think we often in our lives have those, you know, kind of like, oh, you know, if I would have done that, kind of thinking about the roads that we didn't take. And so we wanted to make space for that. So we have a road not taken contest issue. Submissions are due October 15th. I'm putting it on chat if anyone is interested in sharing it with a friend. Um, after that, we're going to have a 50 year anniversary issue um, for marking our 50, like 50 years we did it. Well, let's go another 50 more years. And then after that, I think we'll have an open themed issue. So anything goes, anything goes, but stay tuned. Stay tuned in the newsletter if you're also, um, you know, sign on that once a month, you'll get some updates.